I have my phone, which I should have gotten my timer up while you were talking because I still don't know how to do the segment. And if you want to go for like a minute 10, all is forgiven because I also went a little bit over. I work on the honor system, my friend, uh, most of the time, sometimes. Really. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 20. We've officially made it. Uh, it's our anniversary, although we said our anniversary was last week at episode 19. I made a whole big deal out of it. Uh, my name is Brandon King. I am joined alongside my co-host for today, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing on this fine, fine day? Hey, I've had an excellent weekend of work. I'm excited to sit down, talk with a buddy about this world that I love called entertainment. Um, episode 20, let's celebrate that. Yes! Yes! Yeah. I'll put Any some listeners. applause behind this. Put some applause back there. Put some popcorns popping. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you all for tuning into our madness. For any listeners who have been devoted fans from earlier on episodes, thank you for remaining committed because we have a lot of fun here and I can't wait to record more and more throughout this busy year. We have so much entertainment packed into this year that I can't believe we're being treated with it all. It honestly feels to be like I'm being spoiled for a movie fan. For this show, uh, we have a, it's a bit tighter. Uh, we have a bit fewer reviews. We're still going to do news. We're still going to do directorial reviews. That's back this week. Uh, but we're going to hop into news first and foremost. Uh, of course, because this is our first proper bi-weekly show, we've basically been gathering news stories from the past two weeks-ish. Uh, so a lot of these, are, so some of these might be from times past that you may just have remembering right now. As in this story that literally dropped a couple days after our last episode premiere, the first trailer for Marvel's Moon Knight. Uh, this is the newest Disney Plus Marvel series that's going to be dropping uh, in March. They dropped their first trailer online after uh, Monday Night Football, or during Monday Night Football, I should say. The trailer showcases Oscar Isaac as British clerk Stephen Grant, who uncovers his real identity as American archaeologist Mark Spector, seemingly suffering from disassociative identity disorder, potentially tying into some Egyptian mythology with the, the moon god Khonshu, and a cult leader, uh, Arthur Harrow, played by Ethan Hawke, of all people. This is what happens when you critique the Marvel movies. You get cast in them. Uh, the show will be overseen by the Umbrella Academy's Jeremy Slater, with Cairo 678's Mohamed Dieb and The Twilight Zone's Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson serving as directors. Moon Knight is set to begin its weekly six-episode run on Disney+, Plus, starting on March 30th. What did you think of the first look at Moon Knight that shows a fairly convincing British Oscar Isaac? And some very weird Egyptian god Khonshu madness thrown into it. And Ethan Hawke's there, too. What did you think? Brandon, I know nothing about Moon Knight. So that's why I am so ready for this Oscar Isaac series. Um, I have a little bit of heartbreak over reading the fact that it's going to be six episodes. I think our Disney Plus shows are way too short when it comes to the Marvel uh, special series. But that's okay. It just means that we're going to get plenty of short little stories. And they're going to hopefully always be... Um, renewed for a second season. Hopefully they don't leave us with too many cliffhangers. Um, one of the, one of the details of this show that I'm most looking forward to is the Egyptian mythology, having known nothing about Moon Knight and then Googling, of course, what are his abilities? What is his uh, secret identity like? I'm trying to understand whether this is a uh, vigilante or if this is going to be like, you know, S on his chest, big superhero, but um, I'm still figuring that out. You know, I definitely love the costume design after watching that trailer. It looks like it's going to have hints of um, suspense in there because we have this weird raven looking creature that is hunting Isaac down um, as his character, Stephen Grant. So I'm looking forward to it. I think that uh, the way that they can portray this character, uh, depending on how you know, fresh the take is going to be with a dissociative with a dissociative identity disorder. I think they could do really interesting things here. For me, at least, Moon Knight is a character who for a long time, and I know you, you know, you and a couple other people I know listen to this, like, look to me as like, oh, tell us about the nerdy comic stuff. Moon Knight is so out of my jurisdiction. I, I don't know. I know there's like a David Finch run that's really popular. I know like the old school mythology is interesting. I always was the guy who bought into him was like, oh, he's Batman in a white suit. Uh, cause you know, the gadgets and everything and the, you know, vengeance and all that. And he's not that from all of my like more nerdier friends who know the character, they've told me that it's much more about, you know, looking to false idols and like looking into yourself and finding like and accepting different aspects of yourself. I did actually read the first issue of the Jeff Lemire run from a couple of years ago where he takes on the Mr. Knight persona, which is basically like a white suited mobster, which I always found like kind of a cool concept. And I hope we get that here. Uh, this looks interesting. I was not expecting them to go the route of number one, 
it seems like Isaac's primary character inspiration in this is going to be the Stephen Grant persona, who is British. I was not expecting that to be the lead of this. I was expecting it to be more Mark Spector, but it seems like the Mark Spector persona is going to be much more in the background, kind of the mystery of like, what happened to him? How does Constantine this? Does he have powers? Like that kind of thing. So I'm curious to see what the mystery angle of this goes into play. Ethan Hawke looks ridiculous here, but again, I think he can play that kind of angle they're asking to. And did you see, they did a trailer reaction with him and uh, Oscar Isaac reactions to the trailer. What were their reactions like? How did they respond? Oscar seems genuinely happy. And maybe this is just the cynical part of me. Ethan Hawke looked like he was just kind of buying into the bit of like, wow, isn't this amazing? And I was just like, I can't tell if you're excited or not. Yeah. Are you just trying to give us good, good press? Like what's going on here? I right. hope he's excited for his work here. Cause yeah, his character does look kind of hilarious. He plays a cult leader. It looks like. He does. And I'm, I like the Umbrella Academy. I'm curious to see what Jeremy Slater can do with a character like this. And again, I'm I'm looking forward to trying to explore some of the comic backstory when it comes to this. Again, because I just don't know that much. But again, it looks great. This is the first of uh, four Disney Plus Marvel series we're getting. Uh, She-Hulk, this, uh, Miss Marvel, and The Secret Evasion. Of it, this is not the one I'm looking forward to the most, even with the first trailer, but it's a good first look. Let's go into our second story for the day today. Uh, if you guys didn't know... The, of the many live-action uh, remakes that Disney is trying to do in the next couple of years, uh, there's a Lilo and Stitch one, there's a Peter Pan and Wendy one coming out, uh, there's a bunch of things in development. One of them is a, another live-action Snow White movie. Uh, fun fact, this year actually celebrates the 10-year anniversary of two other ones, uh, that being Mirror Mirror with uh, Julia Roberts and Snow White and the Huntsman with uh, Kristen Stewart. So we're very much living in a live-action Snow White essence, if you want to call it that. Uh, Mark Webb, who directed the Amazing Spider-Man movies, he did 500 Days of Summer. He is set to uh, direct this project with Rachel Zegler from West Side Story, actually, in the lead role. But controversy has already been surrounding this project, uh, thanks to a interview with Peter Dinklage on W2F of Mark Marin. He basically was like, this is a bad idea. Quote, literally no offense to anyone, but I was a little taken aback when they were very proud to cast a Latina actress in Rachel Zegler as Snow White. But you're still telling the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Take a step back there and look at what you're doing. It makes no sense to me. Uh, Disney did actually respond to this, saying they would be taking a, quote, different approach to Web's project with, quote, unspecified magical creatures in the place of the dwarves. They did not go on to elaborate, but apparently it will be different. Also, in a new development, uh, Brad Williams, who was also a dwarf comedian, he uh, actually came out to uh, Cinnabon and talked about Diglett's comments. He disagrees with this. This is what his comments were uh, from that article. I think there's ways to fix it. I think there's ways you can still do a progressive Snow White and not offend the dwarves. Like, maybe make Snow White end up with one of the dwarves in the end. How about that? I mean, she goes for a prince who made out with her while she was legally dead. I mean, that's kind of creepy, right? Uh, the new Snow White project will hit theaters sometime in 2023. We don't have a release date. We don't know if it's Disney Plus exclusive or not. Uh, but we know that Tony Award winner Andrew Burnap is going to star in that. Gal Gadot will also be a part of it. And once again, uh, Mark Webb will be directing it. Noah, over to you. Uh, Snow White is almost a hundred years old at this point. And of course, the old fairy tale is, you know, even older than that. And, you know, like, just as I mentioned, we've gotten, you know, adaptations that are celebrating 10 years now. We've seen this before. And now we're getting people in the limelight, like Peter Dinklage, like Brad, Brad Williams, who have lived those characters and lived those stereotypes, being able to elaborate on that. Who is more, and again, both of these points I think are valid, but who do you necessarily side with in this? Do you think Disney should take a different approach when it comes to this? And are you just interested in the concept as a whole with this story be turned to live action again? I think that um, we can all celebrate the fact that we have uh, Rachel Zegler uh, and her star power returning for this leading role as Snow White. Um, but I think Peter Dinklage, it's not, it's not difficult to side with Peter Dinklage's position regarding what this is, how this speaks to the community at large for, um, like you say, a marginalized community that has often, has often in big movies taken like a, a comedic, um, perspective. Like there's always, I remember in reading some of the articles, there is always a, um, a comedic slap or comedic pun that's tied to a character that, um, is portrayed with dwarfism. And so to, you know, bring back a story that centers around seven of these characters and to make it live action, um, without resorting to this, to the same stereotypes that we've seen before with dwarf, with actors or characters with dwarfism. When, with Disney saying they're going to take a different approach and it's not going to be the same thing that we've seen before, it kind of makes me feel like that's a vague response. Like, I think in a time like this, we need a specific, um, we need a specific outlining of like 
how this is not going to be offensive towards communities. Cause if it at all has that hint of offense, then let's scrap the development or let's bring in members of the community who can actually speak on behalf of, um, on behalf of them rather than just, you know, having one consultant on set. I was reading a guardian article, um, and the writer is Kiruna Stamel. And so here's how she says a live action Snow White could work. Here's an idea, though. The seven dwarfs could live in a house that is only accessible to people four foot two inches tall with an adapted kitchen and adapted vehicles. So all the average height people in their world are forced to bend over for 40% of the film, sit in little chairs and stoop to use the stove. Maybe back pain destroys the evil queen and the perils of bad ergonomic design are really and truly explored. I love the way that um, they outlined that because to me, if we're going to do a live action and we're going to show um, real life characters with these circumstances, let's show the world that works for them or let's show the world that they're living in and make it, make it believable. So remain respectful. I hope they do things right here. Um, but of course it was, it was excellent to hear um, such a popular member of the community speak out. So Peter Dinklage, all respect and love to you. We're going to talk Cyrano very soon. Uh, over to you, Brandon. I was actually going to ask you about that because when Brad Williams brings up the thing of like one of the dwarves ending up with her, I mean, that it looks, I mean, you've seen the movie, but it looks like kind of what Cyrano is going for. Of course. Yeah. No spoilers, of course, but Peter well, Dinklage right, is a, um, he does play one of the romantic opposites in Cyrano. Right. So there is already becoming a bit of precedence for that. And there have been scattered examples throughout in the past. This brings up, I think, an important conversation about representation, about the idea of you know, do you represent people in media, even if the portrayals are bad, because those people are still getting jobs versus if you, you know, put in the effort and get people from the community to try and do it, whether that is the right approach. I side with the latter because I think the former has way more harmful consequences uh, in the long run. And I think that's why I side more with Dinklage on this. Like, kudos to Brad Williams. I think he's on the right track. I think there are ways to make this work. And I love how you mentioned the idea of utilizing production design to kind of make the dwarves environment feel more lived in and feel more normalized to people outside of that community, because that's the only way that in the long run that's going to make sense. Uh, and I know there's going to be the obvious voice of just like, well, it's a fantasy story. It's about like magic apples and evil queens return of the dragons and blah, 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 blah. Yes, but like those fantasy stories and like those grim fairy tales are based in ancient stereotypes and like really bad things that happened in the past that people like to villainize other groups as like, that's where we get a lot of these fairy tales. And that's what a lot of people don't want to recognize with that. So I completely side with Dinklage on this. I think you need to be sensitive to a story like this, especially to a group, you know, like dwarf performers who for a long time have been stunted to a lot of really just, uh, even in the original Snow White, those dwarves are literally one note characters, sleepy, drowsy, bash. Like they're all literally one note characters. So if you can make it more complex and give it that kind of weight that I think Mark Webb as a director, at least to me, I think can bring to his material, I'm all for it. If you can't, there are plenty of other stories that Disney can put their hands on. Let's move on to our final story of the day, and this is the one that I am easily the most excited for. Uh, you all know that I am the animation nut of the podcast, and this is some big news coming from Art and Animations in the past week. Of course, the studio behind Chicken Run, Wallace and Gromit, Flushed Away, uh, Early Man, if any of you saw that. Uh, they're, they're gods of stop motion animation in my eyes. Uh, and this week we got announcements of two new projects coming from the studio. The first being new images from the long in development sequel to Chicken Run, uh, now titled Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget. Uh, Noah made the joke of why didn't you just call it Chicken Nugget? And I'm frankly all with him. Why didn't you just call it Chicken Nugget? It would have been great. Um, they released online, uh, Tendi Way Newton and Zachary Levi. They've been brought in to voice the cast's original characters, Ginger and Roger. Uh, voiced originally by Julius Walha and Mel Gibson. Thank God the latter is not coming back. David Bradley, Bella Ramsey, and Ramesh Ranganathan also voiced characters in the new movie that is set to follow around, quote, having pulled off an escape from Tweety's farm in the first film, Ginger, voiced by Tendi Way Newton, has found a peaceful island sanctuary for the whole flock. But back on the mainland, the whole of chicken kind faces a new threat, and Ginger and her team decide to break in. Uh, that Chicken Run movie is set for release on Netflix in 2023, as is a new feature-length Wallace and Gromit movie, which will be their first uh, feature-length movie since 2005's Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which I absolutely love. Uh, that story will focus on the following. Gromit's concern that Wallace has become over-dependent on his inventions proves justified when Wallace invents a smart gnome, haha, <laughs> get it, uh, that seems to develop a mind of its own. As events spiral out of control, it falls to Grummet to put aside his qualms towards his master and battle sinister forces, or Wallace may never be able to invent again. Oh, God, the stakes have never been higher and more charming. Noah, 
Uh, I actually haven't talked to you about this. How big of a fan are you of these Armin projects like Chicken Run, like Wallace and Gromit? And which of these two are you most looking forward to? Brandon, smart gnome. The smart gnome. They don't stop. They're so good. Yes, of course I get it. (laughs) That's so great. Um, Wallace and Gromit, while I couldn't tell you, you know, um, the stories beat to beat. I could tell you that they're lovable characters that I remember seeing even at the drive through theaters while I was growing up in elementary school. And while I'm usually a claymation, like I have a claymation phobia, like people will show me Coraline and I will say, yes, I love the movie because I watched it through maybe like two whole times, but claymation actually makes me feel like it unnerves me for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. Guillermo del Toro's new Pinocchio looks like it's going to be claymation. And I absolutely can't wait for that, but maybe that's just me growing up. Um, returning to these two stories. Yeah. Chicken run Dawn of the nugget for one. What a terrifying title. Dawn of the nugget for. It, it makes it sound like a giant, like boulder sized nugget is going to crash all the chickens. <laughs> it makes me think that our chickens are slowly like being slowly. There's going to be some genocidal approach to our chickens as oh, is God. in real life. Oh my God. Exactly. That's why Dawn of the nugget scares me, but it's all okay. rated chicken run. <laughs> IMDB listed as just Chicken Run 2 for now. Um, most exciting comments from me are going to be Zachary Levi coming in for a voice acting role. He's got such a lovable voice that you are familiar with in um, both in animation and in live action, whether you're watching Shazam or you're um, listening to his voice as the character. Um, I was going to say Eugene, but he has a, he has like his alias in you're Tangled. not wrong. <laughs> I'm not wrong. His name is Eugene, but his um, Flynn Ryder is going to be his name um, in the movie Tangled. And that is so beautiful. So um, having learned about the cast list, Hendyway Newton and um, and addition, like Bella Ramsey, of course, um, I was excited about her for The Last of Us. Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget is a franchise I don't want to see die out, especially because of the nostalgia value that it has for me and some members of my family. I would love to introduce some of the younger members of my family to that franchise. In this case, this movie has very high stakes, but uh, typically these movies are more casual centered. Um, and uh, I, I think their relationship is probably the most um, easy things to gravitate towards when it comes to Wallace and Gromit. Um when you are near, whether you're close to Brandon's circles, like in real life, or you follow him on Twitter, Brandon is such a great contact to have because he introduces you to so much animation. I think before I started this podcast, just nobody in my life, like, brings animation animated titles to the forefront of my vision until I met Brandon and talked to him so frequently. There's so many great animation titles that uh, Brandon is introducing me to. And here's just a couple more that I'm going to add to my list of things to be excited for for this year. Brendan, how are you feeling regarding these titles? I like drawings. <laughs> or in this case, I like clay. Uh, yeah, first of all, Chicken Run terrified me as a kid. Uh, specifically Miss Tweety, uh, who is, in my opinion, one of the underrated film villains of all time. If you're a kid watching that movie, it's terrifying. Let alone the stop motion thing that I was actually with you for a little while. It, it freaked me out until I recognized like the craft behind it and you know, the humanity behind it. And when I watched Wallace and Gromit, which even though Curse of the Were-Rabbit is meant to be kind of like a kid's horror movie, I was just slapping myself stupid throughout it. Like I did a, um, I did an anniversary review uh, last year for it. It holds up. It's wonderful. It's delightful. It takes what's great about those shorts, whether it's, you know, the wrong trousers or anything like that, um, and just expands upon it into a really great, solid 90-minute movie. Uh, side note, I hope like Helena Bonham Carter and like Ralph Fiennes come back from that movie. Like I like their characters in that, but I, who knows? It's been 15 years. Uh I'm excited for both of these. Um, I like the cast for Chicken Run very much. I like the title. I like the idea that we're looking at these chickens so many years afterwards and seeing what their lives are like and seeing, again, what Arden's animation can do with that later. The Wallace and Gromit, though, again, that's that's peak comedy. Like, it's Wallace being in over his head and Gromit having to save his ass and, you know, trying to find everything wrong with it. And then some guy, there will eventually be like a, uh, like a Mark Rylance type tech giant, like in Don't Look Up that, you know, tries to take the smart gnome for his own good. And like, in Ardman's hands, I am all for it. Like in any other person's hands, I'd be skeptical, but I trust Ardman with my life, basically. That wraps up our new section for the day. Brandon and I are going ahead and trailing ahead. I don't know why I said it, going ahead, trailing ahead. <laughs> Word vomit. Well, well, no, 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 because trailing ahead, because you're talking about a trailer. 
We're talking about a trailer, baby. Let's go ahead and move toward our quick hit section. This, of course, is our fun little one-minute section where myself and Brandon will present our top news story of the day that couldn't really make it to our news section. Um, this is going to be a news topic uh, anywhere between uh, last episode and this one, so we're looking at about two weeks' time. Uh, Brandon, if you don't mind, I will start us off. Here we go. So I have one minute starting now. I have a new trailer to share with you all. It is from A24. The title is X. Yes, just like the letter. X marks the spot, uh, but the title is just X. It's going to star Mia Goth, Jenna Ortega, Brittany Snow, and Scott Mascuddy. Yes, Kid Cuddy is going to be in a horror movie. I am so ready for that. Um, coming to theaters March 13th. Uh, this is from the same studio that uh, brought you Midsommar, brought you Hereditary, and so many other horror flicks that you may be a fan of already. So here's the, here is what the uh, plot synopsis is. We are looking at at a secluded farmhouse in Texas, a film crew arrives to shoot an adult film. Their hosts, a reclusive elderly couple, take a special interest in their young guests. As night falls, the couple's leering interest turns violent. This is Jenna Ortega's next film in a very busy roster of filmmaking uh, titles that she's been a part of after recently coming off of Scream. I'm running out of time, but I just want to say, if you check out that trailer on YouTube, you're going to get the chills because this looks like amazing, like secluded farmhouse, 70s horror. It looks like a trip. I cannot wait to share more about with you uh, as we get closer. Brandon, speaking of trips, what do you have for us today? I have my phone, which I should have gotten my timer up while you were talking because I still don't know how to do the segments. And if you want to go for like a minute 10, all is forgiven because I also went a little bit over. I work on the honor system, my friend, uh, most of the time, sometimes, rarely. We're going to start now before I start talking in three, two. So do you guys remember that 2017 comedy Girls Trip, that great, you know, kind of road trip movie with Tiffany Haddish or Regina Hall? I loved it. I gave it an honorable mention to my best films 2017 list. I still think it holds up. And we were wondering for a long time, will we see these characters again? Uh, Tiffany Haddish has kind of teased it for a while. Uh, the director, Malcolm D. Lee, has teased it for a while. Now in a new interview with GMA, uh, Will Packer, who's the producer on the film, also the producer for the next Oscar ceremony. We'll see how that turns out. He basically confirmed it's happening, uh, saying, Girls Trip 2 sequel, we are underway. We are absolutely in the stages. The ladies are in. I just talked to the director. We are under with Girls Trip right now. It's just about what kind of trip do we take, right? Post-pandemic with all of our favorite ladies, what do we do with them? That's what we got to figure out. So we know that Malcolm D. Lee is coming back to direct. We know that Tiffany Haddish, Queen Latifah, Regina Hall, and Jada Pinkett-Smith will all be coming back. Uh, I was a huge fan of the first one. Again, I disagree with Mal- with Will Packer's stance on post-pandemic. We're still very much in a post-pandemic, but I get the idea behind it, and I'm very interested to see what these characters are going to do, and that's the humor going forward and time. Great job, Brandon. Good job, Noah. Thank you so much, random guest in the back. Was that you, Geralt? Was that you? Okay. Um, yeah, it was me. That, that's going to wrap our quick hit section for the day. Uh, thank you for joining us. We can go ahead and move forward to our new movies for the week. Today, we are actually delivering to you two titles, and these are going to be exclusively handled by my partner here, Brandon King. We are looking at The King's Daughter, although Brandon's not a parent yet, and... A hero. And I added yet, Brandon, I don't know your your family plans. I'm just saying we have movies called The King's Daughter and The King's Man in theaters right now, and I don't know how we got to that point. The King's Daughter, this is the newest project from Sean McNamara, who you probably know if you are any bit nostalgic as a child. Uh, He directed the Three Ninjas movies. He directed uh, the Sweet Life movie. He directed the third Cats and Dogs movie. Like any weird nostalgia bait movie, he's Worked on to some extent. He's worked on Casper and Bratz and like he's mostly worked on kids' movies. This is arguably maybe his most mature project uh, in a little while. We'll get to why I don't think that's the case. But uh, again, this is based off of Vonda McIntyre's novel, The Moon and the Sun, which was the original name of this project. Uh, it has been in development for a long time, and I'll discuss that in a moment. The movie itself focuses on Maurice Joseph, who is played by Caius Godelario, who you might know from the Maze Runner movies, from Skins, uh, from the latest part of the Caribbean movie. She is a young woman at a uh, abbey raised by nuns. She's supposedly an orphan until she is brought to the palace of King Louis XV, played in this movie by Pierce Brosnan. In this movie, King Louis XV is looking for immortal life. His religious advisor, played by William Hurt, is kind of putting him on the right track. But then uh, Dr. Lavarth, who is his science advisor, played by Purple Schreider, 
he's very much like, no, like you can live forever. There are ways to do that. And he's like, how? And he's, the answer is mermaids, which is totally scientific because this is the 1500s or something like that. And it's totally valid. Uh, they go out to sea. They send a captain played by Ben Walker who goes to capture the mermaid. Sure enough, he does. Uh, the mermaid is played by Fan Bingbing, who you might know from X-Men. Uh, if you know Chinese cinema, she's an incredibly prevalent actress on there. And the movie then focuses on basically two stories. You get a budding romance between the captain, again, played by Ben Walker, and Marie, played by Kai Scodelario. And then you also get the overarching story of what does the king plan to do with the mermaid? How does he and his, uh, his court plan to achieve everlasting life? Is Marie okay with that? And what are Marie's connections to King Louis, if anything else? Uh, this movie has fascinated me. I remember years ago uh, when on AMC Movie Talk, this movie got announced as like, oh, this is an interesting little, you know, fantasy movie. Pierce Brosnan and the girls can be in Pirates of the Caribbean. And I was like, that sounds neat. And then we didn't hear about it for seven years. In fact, actually, development has gone back to the 90s when I think like uh, Natalie Portman was attached. It got picked up. It was going to go in production. It did go into production in 2015. And then Paramount didn't want to deal with it. They put it on the back shelf. Eventually, Gravitas Ventures, who is a mostly B-movie producer distribution company, uh, but there's been some other things here and there, they picked it up and now it's getting theatrical release this year. And let me just simply say, you can tell. You can tell how much of this movie has been chopped up in the editing bay. Something went wrong in that seven years of delay, if that sounds impossible to believe. Um this this isn't good. I, I didn't like this very much. And for a movie that looked like it was just going to be a Victorian type free willy story where it's, no, like, save the mermaid. Like, she deserves a life. And the king's like, no, like, I'm more powerful than Bayou Blue. You would think there could be something interesting there. And I think the most interesting part of the story is the dynamic between uh, Pierce Brosnan and William Hurt, who plays his uh, priest advisor, because I think it goes to the idea of where at that time the idea of monarchy in Europe was that idea of, you know, the king is the sun and the moon in the sky and like the end all be all beyond the church. And like the church is only there to advise the king who is the voice of God. Like there's little things like that in there that I think are really interesting. Like there's a couple conversations there, not necessarily with the scientist, Pablo Schreiber is in a completely different movie, but between the priest and the king that I think are interesting. Other than that, like Caius Godelario comes out fine She's given nothing to do. Like, her whole thing in the movie is that she's brought to the court as, like, oh, I want you to compose my music. Like, and music becomes a key part of the movie that, you know, she's a composer. The king is very much into music. Uh, the mermaid, put by Fan Binging, has, like, this natural song that, like, Kaya incorporates into her work. And it goes nowhere. Like, it just, it does the story, but there's no depth to it. There's supposed to be this connection between uh, Marie and the mermaid. We never feel it. It's mostly just to, an excuse to get, like, visual effects on Finn Bing Bing, which look terrible, by the way. Oh, my God. I, I cannot believe they made Finn Bing Bing, who is utterly stunning, look this bad. Um, and the, the sets look cheap. It looks like something out of, like, a Disneyland, like, theme park attraction or something like that. There's a whole scene when, um, when Marie and the king are dancing in, like, the courts, and you can tell that, like, the editing has been, like, chopped down to, like, its bare minimum, even though the movie isn't that short. I think it's only, like, an hour 45, maybe? No, it's only an hour and a half. Uh, like, it's that short, and it feels just chopped down to, like, let's just get a story where it's a girl who wants to save the mermaid, and there's an egotistical king. And that should be cool. And it's just really not like the story just goes nowhere. And I just could not believe how uninterested I was in it. Brandon, thank you for always being as honest as, as you are with our movie reviews. I don't want to be that guy. No, I'm happy to hear about it because I'm sitting here looking at a title card or I'm sorry, a title poster that makes me go, Ooh, is this the little mermaid? Like we haven't got a mermaid tale, like on a big screen in a while. Like I can't wait to see what they do with this. Little did I know. Seven years did they abandon this project only to deliver something that was, you know, to say it's basic would be kind. And then I was most interested in hearing your comments around like the lore that they include with the mermaid. Cause I think exploring fantastical creatures is always fun, but to hear that they even dropped the ball there. I'm like, how do you drop the ball on a, a sea, on a sea mermaid? Literally in, in the third act, they try to make like, they try to develop the mythology behind like the mermaid and like her kingdom and everything. And oh my God, it feels just so like, Okay, cool. Like, there's a detail. Where was that earlier? Like, why do I care about the stuff at the court? Like, yes, Marie is shy and she doesn't want to deal with that. But like, there is magical stuff that we can deal with and you just do nothing with it. Let's leave this in the water. Let's move on. 
I don't even, I don't want to give it a rating. Like I don't want to give it a three out of 10, but it's the only thing I can give because again, like the brief moments of Pierce Brosnan and William Hurt together are interesting. Again, Kai Scodelario, I think she can make the phone book work. I think she's immensely talented and I can't wait to see what she does with it. And actually fun fact, uh, she and Ben Walker, this movie has been delayed so long. They met on set, got married and had two kids in the time that this movie has been out. So that's how what? long. Yeah, right. That's how insane this movie is. Um, but again, like she makes it out okay. I think there's things about it that work, but don't go out to theater to see this. Like when it comes on VOD, maybe, but this is not worth your time. We are moving to your next review, and that is going to be covering the film A Hero, an Amazon Prime video release. Yeah, so A Hero is the newest project from Asghar Fahadi, who is an incredibly acclaimed uh, Iranian filmmaker. Uh, he's made stuff like. Uh, about Ellie, he won the Best International Film Oscar for The Salesman, which was actually a huge deal at the time because Donald Trump had placed restrictions on who could come from uh, Iran and the Middle East. So there was a whole thing with the Oscars about that. Uh, he is back now with his newest project, A Hero. Uh, he wrote and directed this and produced it as well. It stars uh, Amir Jadidi as a man named Rahim. He's been in prison for having to repay debts that he can't afford. Uh, but he's out on leave for a couple of days to see his family and everything. He's essentially trying to restart his life as best he can. He's looking for work with old friends. He's staying with his sister, played by Foresta Orafaye. He is kind of working somewhat with the debt, with the creditor who essentially took his life away, uh, and his daughter and their printing shop and that kind of thing. Essentially, the story of the movie is this, that Raheem one day and his girlfriend who... Raheem is trying to leave his wife. He has a girlfriend outside of prison. That's the gist of it. Uh, he finds a bag filled with gold coins, and he is able to find the woman who lost it. He returns it, and the local news media essentially like, takes to him and is like, wow, what a good guy this is. That's actually a really great thing, and he becomes this local celebrity who, for all intents and purposes, like, oh, wow, like you had to pay off debts, and you could have taken this money for yourself, but you didn't. You did actually a good thing and returned it to its owner. And as more news coverage goes on and as the people who – you know, have him in prison there. And as his uh, creditors look to him, they begin to ask certain questions about like, well, how did you find the bag? And how was your sister involved in like, you gave it to your sister to return? Like, where, you know, how did she find the woman? And there starts to be these questions of like, well, how good is this deed? And how good were Rahim's intentions in regard, Rahim's intentions in regards to that deed? I'll admit, I am not fully aware of Farhadi's uh, filmography. I did watch A Salesman. I think it's fantastic. Uh, but that's pretty much the extent of his work. I really need to get on it. I've heard amazing things about his sense of story and his sense of writing. And actually, he was just on the uh, Hollywood Reporter roundtable for directors. And if you hear him talk, he really makes you aware of his sense as a writer more than a director. Like, he is so focused on story and narrative direction that it's also very fascinating. And I think this is a prime example of that. I was really invested in this. And I think the reason I was invested in this is because of the character of Rahim, played by Amir Jadidi, who, again, is a fairly new name to me. I'm not familiar with his work, but he really makes – there are echoes of Adam Sandler's portrayal in Uncut Gems here, but it is a very much different character. Like, Rahim is a good guy who wants to do the right thing for his family, um, who wants to just have a happy life with his girlfriend, who wants to just be, you know, out of jail and, like, living a good life. But at the same time, he just doesn't go about it the right way. And I think – it ties into Farhadi's, at least to my idea, like what Farhadi is going for with this movie, which is that good things only go so far. And like inevitably there will be someone who you wrong and you have to weigh those things accordingly. Like you can make good decisions and you can make what you believe is the right intention for you and for the ones you care about. But eventually, if you aren't careful, those things can backfire in really disastrous ways. Like, And that's what Raheem's journey in this is. It's essentially that idea of, well, I did this good thing. I should be rewarded for this thing. But should you, though? Because you have wronged other people in the process. You haven't taken accountability for it. And you're not taking accountability just because you think you did this good thing. It's uh, To say it's a morality tale is a bit simplistic, but that's kind of what I gathered from this. And the more you follow Raheem's journey, you know, through the town and, like, visiting side characters and seeing, like, what the people closest to him think of his decisions, it becomes more fascinating. I was just really engrossed by it. Brandon, I have a question. Excellent review, by the way. I have a question regarding the momentum in the story. Do you feel like this is a type of story that picks up speed, um, you know, as, as he finds that bag of money or as he finds, um, you name it, the plot device that he needs to push the story forward? <laughs> you make the, uh, only the portrayal um, reference to Uncut Gems, but it makes me think of how fast that movie moved once it started going. Is this movie, uh, you know, does it take its time or do you feel that sort of pressure as a viewer watching that too? 
they are very different because again, Rahim is a character who is centered in himself, who like knows his responsibility. There's actually a bond between him and his nephew that I think is really pure and is kind of like the moral center of the movie. Uncut Gems never has that. Like Adam Sandler's character in that movie is constantly running from one thing to the next. And like the Safety Brothers direction is like, no, look over there. Like, look what he's doing. Look at that line of dialogue. And this is very much like, no, a guy going through things that as the movie progresses, the pace does start to, it starts to condense a bit more. Like things just start to come, not crashing down, but come inward towards Raheem as a character. But especially for the first half, you're just kind of wandering with this character. Like, and then he does a thing and then, you kind of follow periodically where those events go, but it's not so much, look at this, 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 and this. All right. You do have a rating to provide as well. This is a solid eight. I think this is really good. Again, I can't say in context to the rest of Farhadi's work. I do think it's not as good as The Salesman. I think that movie just has a pacing and an emotionality to it that just really resonated with me. But this is really impressive. I do hope it gets uh, off of that short list for International Feature and actually gets nominated in a couple of weeks. I think it's really good. I think it is a story that, again, tells how to reconcile with good deeds, how they affect you and everyone else, and how much you should center those to your own personality and how that can lead to really disastrous results as a result. Again, it's, I believe, in a few theaters right now. It is streaming on Amazon if you can look it up. If you're okay with subtitles, absolutely give it a shot. Again, I think if, as far as streaming offerings, it's one of the better ones out there right now. We can go ahead and push on forward to our TV, Stream Wars, HBO Max, Amazon Prime. Actually, we are just talking HBO Max today. We are talking HBO Max's new original DC title, Peacemaker. So this series takes place after, immediately after James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. We have John Cena, of course, returning as the chrome dome head man who kills for peace no matter how many men, women, and children he has to kill to get it. So he's definitely the ruthless type. Um, this time he is returning to his unincarcerated life. He wakes in a hospital um, and realizes he's going to be handled by Argus. It is Amanda Waller's organization. You can think S.H.I.E.L.D., but in the DC universe. Um, and as a member or as... Um, as he's being handled by this Argus team, they are all tasked with taking down a new group of metahumans in an operation titled Project Butterfly. That is um, essentially the summary to get you started with the series. We have, um, of course, Peacemaker's real name is Christopher Smith. That is portrayed by John Cena. We have um, other uh, main characters in Danielle Brooks as her portrayal of Leota um, Adebayo. We have Freddie Stroma coming as Adrian Chase and additional main characters in Chuck Woody Iwuji. That is Clemson Mern. He's sort of uh, the leader of their Argus squad. And then we have the actual handler of Peacemaker. That is Jennifer Holland as Agent Amelia Harcourt. Um, Brandon, I want to toss to you because I just want to get uh, your response over what you thought about a Peacemaker show announcement and then what you anticipated going into this show. I mean, I don't know about you. My initial announcement was, okay, sure. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, like, it's, I, again, like we've both seen Suicide Squad. Like, actually go listen to one of our first episodes. We actually reviewed it. Um, and I really liked the character of Peacemaker there. I think it's maybe John Cena's best work acting wise. I think he's really proved himself an incredible performer who in the right stuff knows how to, knows how to fluctuate himself and knows how to actually form himself in the character. And James Gunn, kind of like a magic trick knows how to use him here. Uh, this is my way of bearing the lead and saying, like, I really like this show. For those of you who, like, know the comic history, like, he was a Charlton character in, like, the pre-DC age. He, again, he had exactly the costume that he is in the show, but he was he was a nobody. Like, he popped in a Blue Beetle run. Like, nobody knew what to do with him. And then James Gunn was like, oh, yeah, Peacemaker's cool. Like, he's basically a symbol for, like, American imperialism and just, like, American patriotism and that gone completely awry. And suddenly it becomes total sense why he would want to do something like this and while i don't think this has as of yet approached the same kind of you know nuance to those themes that the original suicide squad film did it's a ton of fun uh it's hilarious there's kind of a you know parks of rec style slash office mockumentary dynamic between uh peacemaker and his the rest of his team all of which are really entertaining uh specifically danielle brooks as adebayo who is fantastic i love her in this i can't wait to see her in more things but like Hardcore is great. Uh, Economos is a jerk, and I love him for it. Chukwudi uh, Iwuji, who's actually going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, I had never heard him before this. He's great in this. He kind of, he is the parallel to Waller, who is slightly more social than Waller, which I like the idea of kind of 
uh, building that sort of and Robert Patrick, who is just an a-hole in this as uh, as Peacemaker's dad, and whose story I think is going to have more merit than we think it will, like with that whole white dragon aesthetic to it all. But again, it's hilarious. The action's really great. The butterfly stuff as of right now is fascinating. I don't know how it'll end, but I'm having a great time. This is a show that, again, uh, to reiterate what Brandon said after the Suicide Squad, I thought, oh, all right, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's charge on ahead to go see the Peacemaker. Um, while I did sleep on the first couple episodes, I had to check in with Brandon and go, are we going to talk this show on the pod? Because I got to be honest, like, I don't know what, I don't know if I have high hopes for it or if I think good things will come of it. He goes, Noah, like they're doing great things with it. So I checked it out and I got to say complete 180. Like I, I do uh, consider myself now a fan of the show. Um, specifically, uh, yes, two characters of the Argus team. Um, it has so many special moments because, uh, Peacemaker, you know, the character Christopher Smith is playing a, you know, he's a man child. He's somebody who is very immature, very ignorant to how he uh, communicates with the world and being John Cena, being this big, you know, bodybuilding man. Um, he looks like he's clearly over six feet, I would guess. I don't know how tall John Cena is, but he's just like this hulking figure. And at times, some of his scenes portray him as being so soft and uh, vulnerable. So I really like seeing that in the character. I think they have a lot of fun with it. There are excellent, like, one-off scenes with this character named Vigilante, who's, like, one of uh, Peacemaker's old best friends. Um, and their back and forth is just like you would expect from two longtime friends. Uh, it's so funny. The end of episode one portrays how strong Peacemaker can be when he activates uh, an ability like from his dome, from that, you know, chrome helmet that he wears all the time. That for me was really like, it, it, it showed us the kind of gore we can expect in this action series. And you know, I'm always here for gore. You know, I'm here for that bloody mess that comes out of an explosion. Um, spoiler alert. And uh, yeah, I would say at least give the first episode a shot and you can really get the vibe of what the show's going for. Um, the, the story paces well. Um, like I said, being in episode three, uh, I, I'm starting to understand what this butter, butterfly project means. Uh, Peacemaker immediately guesses that it's like a giant butterfly because of the events of the Suicide Squad. Um, but as I'm talking about starting the episode with, uh, the episode one, I mean, f- five minutes in, you're going to get what the show's going for because it has a, an amazing, like one of a kind title sequence that um, is set to the song. Do you want to taste it by Wigwam? Brandon, what do you think about that title sequence? I had never heard of Wigwam in my life. And I don't know how James Gunn finds these eclectic music artists. Um, but no, this is one of the most unskippable title sequences of all time. You, you can't skip it. Like I've watched the first four episodes and I have not skipped it. And I have gone back and watched it online several times. It is just so perfectly serious for what this show is. And yet the music and the choreography is just, it's something special. And I've never seen a title sequence like it. It is so beautiful. Um, we have so many pops of neon color that, you know, feels familiar for our Guardians of the Galaxy director. Um, he steps in and as credited as the show's creator, but he steps in and directs a couple episodes too. Um, and it, it was great to see something, uh, so fun, even just off the bat. Like this is, um, all of the, all of the main cast coming in on this, like pretty much like an empty set. Um, and doing a dance number with the most serious, like, operation. I can't even describe what their faces it's, are it's, like, but it's basically like step up style choreography, but in the most ridiculous, like, 80s style pastiche set. And we have our lovely friend Eagly, that's Peacemaker's sidekick. Eagly. Uh, yes, it is an eagle uh, coming in to wrap up that title sequence. Um, but it's, it's so lovely. This show's actually, um, warmed up to me and, or I guess I've warmed up to the show. And, uh, in case you uh, are not a fan of like some of the raunchier humor, uh, this definitely steps it up. Like this is not a show that I would recommend watching with like your younger siblings or like, you know, as a family, because there are, there is some of that um, raunchy humor in there. But uh, if you're sitting there enjoying it with your friends, uh, this is definitely a title that you all will be uh, like laughing at together. Totally. And like James Gunn is a director and a creator who likes to push the envelope. I mean, that's what he got to start on doing, like the, the trauma things and, you know, Slither and everything. And I think this is a show that, while I don't think it explores like the bigger issues as much, I think it very much is an idea of like, yeah, you choose Pacemaker to leave the show because Suicide Squad was all about bad people who get the opportunity to good things. And what does that say about their morality and their place in the world? And I think that really applies to Chris as a character as well, because again, like you mentioned, he's not necessarily evil. 
like he's misguided. He's a weapon who is pointed, you know, at all the wrong people. But he's, you know, he's fragile. He's emotional. He's got all these like very human tendencies. And as we're going through the show, particularly again with his relationship with um with Adebayo, you start to see that kind of unfold and that complexity start to arise. Like, is redemption possible for him even after you know the stuff in Suicide Squad, or is he just as bad as he's been raised? And like, I like getting to explore those questions. I've yet to meet a new character called Judo Master, but Brandon, tell me, do I have a surprise in store for me? Like, how entertaining is Judo Master? That's right. You haven't gotten episode three. Uh, Newt Lay as Judo Master steals the show. Uh, he's absolutely fantastic. And there is a fight scene in episode four that is, I was laughing the whole way through. Like, it's really well choreographed, but it's just hilarious watching them go at it. So that wraps up uh, TV Stream Wars HBO Max segment of our show. Uh, Brandon and I do recommend you go check out Peacemaker that is available on HBO Max. Uh, that show will be wrapping up here in the next couple weeks, and we'll be happy to return to the title to give you a star rating once we uh, watch the entire series. So moving on to our uh, the tail end of our show, we are covering a new directorial debut. I'm very happy to see this segment return, and we are watching Pride and Prejudice, directed by Joe Wright. Uh, this was Joe Wright's first project. We were going to make this topical because originally Noah was going to be talking about Cyrano. Uh, it was supposed to come out in wide release this week. Uh, the studio decided to push it back to a wide release at the end of February. So Noah will be reviewing it. I know he's been holding you off for so long. I watched Cyrano, I think, like a month and a half ago. Still in my brain. I can't wait to talk to you all about it. Um, but without further ado, we will talk pride and prejudice and zombies. But scrap the zombies. There's no zombies in this one. Oh crap, I didn't watch the zombies version. Okay, I'll have to, I'll have to just go back to the Austin version. Okay, this is, uh, Joe Wright's directorial debut. He, uh, previously had his work on a lot of, uh, TV stuff, on a lot of commercials, as a lot of directors do. Uh, but he had created this really cool visual style. He worked with, like, the Chemical Brothers and Underworld and a lot of, like, uh, industrial electronic bands and, like, the rave scene. And as a result, he was kind of offered by the producers, Tim Bevner and Eric Faulkner, who have done a lot of for UK cinema. Uh, he was brought on to do their new adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, uh, written by, I have the name in front of me, uh, written by Deborah Murak, uh, who's best known as like a uh, novel writer. Again, this was a new take on the classic adaptation of Jane Austen. What is the story? I'm sure there's Jane Austen fans right now who are screaming at me, we don't need to know the story. I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, it takes place in the 1700s in uh, the UK. Uh, this is changed from the original set, from the original time period in the book, but it's updated for a couple of hundred years. We follow the five Bennett daughters. Uh, you have Elizabeth played by Kira Knightley. You have uh, Russman Pike as Jane. You have a very young Carrie Mulligan as Kitty. You have Jenna Malone, also very young, starting a career as Lydia. And Tallulah Riley as Mary. Their parents are played by Brenda, Ble- Brenda Blevin and Donald Sutherland play Mr. And Mrs. and Mr. Bennett. Basically, the story revolves primarily around uh, Elizabeth. She's very independent, very self-aware of herself in a time period when women are expected to go off and marry and just kind of have lives with their husbands and not be themselves. Uh, I saw a lot of parallels to Little Women in this, and that is me speaking as someone who is not familiar with Jane Austen at all, and we'll get into it. Uh, at a ball, uh, Jane meets a man named Mr. Darcy, who is played in this movie by Matthew McFadden. And the movie essentially follows the relationship between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, navigating of social norms. Joe Wright explores that, in my opinion, pretty beautifully, but I want to go over to Noah first. Uh, having seen Cyrano, and I'm not sure how much of Joe Wright's filmography you're familiar with, uh, what do you take from this? And also just uh, as far as, you know, your experience with Jane Austen and her material as well. I hadn't spent a lot of time in school, even in like the earlier, like elementary and high school days exploring her work. The When I think about classic uh, novels that I've read, uh, I think about like Charlotte Bronte's uh, Jane Eyre. Like I was more familiar um, around my circles and uh, returning to Joe Wright after seeing Cyrano. Oh, I'm so excited that this could remain topical, even if it is within the one week window or sorry, two week window, because we're recording biweekly. Uh, there are additional um, movies from Wright that I have seen. Uh, recently, we saw Netflix's uh, Amy Adams picture. It's the woman in the window. I definitely watched that. Um, and I was so happy to learn that this is the same director of one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror that is on a Netflix. It is the Nosedive episode starring Bryce Dallas Howard. That is an excellent episode. I recommend everybody go check that out because that tells a wonderful tale about how it would work if we all received like five-star ratings in real life. Um, returning to Pride and Prejudice, 
having been unfamiliar with the story until we explored it on our directorial debut, um, I was ready for a, you know, I'm coming off of Bridgerton. So that's the only thing I could relate it to. I'm sorry. Um, but I'm coming off of, uh, you know, seeing Bridgerton, seeing Cyrano, seeing, uh, this time period explored before, um, this movie definitely, um, feels like a book adaptation, I think, for me. So the primary romance that I was focused on as a viewer was between um, Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. That's uh, Knightley's character and McFadden's. And uh, this movie definitely feels like a novel adaptation because of all of the small events that happen in between. It reminds me of like, uh, you know, if we're exploring a group of sisters and we're exploring the topic of who will they marry and for what reasons, whether it be, um, you know, for money, for status, uh, maybe for both or just strictly for love, it takes me back to the Little Women story that we just saw. Um, where I think it feels very familiar to explore the different sisters and their attitudes towards love. Some top comments for me are going to be, for one, I love the costuming. I think that uh, it wasn't until I saw Judy Dench's character that I just, I felt like I was in the room with her because of how quickly you could communicate status based on what you were wearing in this period. Um, so I, I absolutely loved the costume design here. Uh, early on in the movie, there's a particular, Particular, uh, one particular shot, uh, it's a long shot that has its focus on uh, the household that uh, the Bennets live in and uh, Elizabeth Bennett, as she walks in, we have like some of her sisters playing the piano, some of her other sisters running around and her mother just trying to keep all the chaos controlled. Um, and I really like that. I think the score is amazing. It makes me feel like I settled right in with the Bennett family. And although I don't want to say like a fan of like historical romance, because of course I am, but I just felt like this has certain themes that I which is the reason why I didn't explore it before because I didn't find anything too impactful here for me to, for me to write on. But as I was watching it, it was easy for me to just be right there with the Bennett family thinking beat to beat what's going to happen to them. I know how obsessed the mother is with gaining, gaining a partner for her children um, that I was just willing to ride the journey. Of course um, it follows, you know, a couple cliches, you know, there is a rain scene where we confess our love to each other. Um, but otherwise off of the first take, you know, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I was, I'm happy it's now um, in the catalog of movies I've explored with directorial debuts. Uh, Brandon, what are some top comments from you? Yeah, uh, just real quickly, Dario Marinelli uh, did the score for this. He's worked, I think, on most of Joe Wright's movies uh, to really great effect, I might add. I love his work on um, on Atonement and a couple other things. Uh, I came into this hearing for from most people I had heard, why haven't you seen this movie? Because this movie has a passionate fan base. And as I have, you know, gone into research, this kind of inspired at the time a kind of hybridization of Jane Austen's work with more, you know, modern progressive sensibilities to her work. And not that Austen wasn't progressive. It's just that uh, filmmakers were being brought in with like really radical visions. And Joe Wright, if you look at some of his pre, you know, uh, pre Pride and Budget's work, it's not what you'd call streamlined mainstream stuff. Like it's a little bit out there. Um, and I'm really glad they brought him on because he really handles this quite well. Um, and again, this is coming from someone who has never read the story. I don't know as much experience with, you know, the, but I like the story as presented, particularly the main love story between, uh, between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Side note, was I the only one who got Alan Rickman vibes from Matthew McFadden in this? Oh no, definitely Alan Rickman vibes. I'm, I'm right there with you. Okay. Cause the whole time when you pop someone's screen, it was just like, that's Alan Rickman. And then I had to go, no, no, it's not. Um, that'd be weird. Uh, but no, I think he and Matthew McFadden and Keira Knightley are fantastic in this. Keira Knightley got nominated for an Oscar for this. And I think it's frankly well-deserved at the time. Um, and I think their relationship is so interesting because you are constantly seeing how their different worldviews interlope with each other. And I know it's been said that like, oh, you know, Elizabeth has too much pride and Mr. Darcy has too much prejudice and they have to come together. And that's how the story works. Like, and that's very much on display on this. I think their characters really circle around each other in this kind of yin and yang thing to the point where spoiler when the movie ends and they do get their ending it feels so well earned and it feels so beautiful and like the last few minutes of it i was really getting emotional at it particularly the scene between her between kieran knightley and donald sutherland who doesn't get a ton to do but he has a great moment at the end with kieran knightley i actually love that moment yeah the last thing i expected was for um President Snow to convince me that he has a heart. Okay. That's how good of an actor Donald Sutherland is. Donald Sutherland plays a wonderful father in this show, even at times going right up against the comments of the mother because of uh, how much he loves his daughters and how, how much he agrees with um, their own dispositions uh, surrounding, you know, where they want to spend their love and how they want to uh, choose a partner. I just, I found that just like you, you know, very, very endearing and very heartwarming. 
So, and I know we keep bringing up the Little Women comparison, but that's just like what we know. But like, you know, there is that sense of like what that movie and that novel were essentially about, which is like the prospect of marriage and the opportunity of marriages in a society where they mean very different things. Like marriage means something economical to people, uh, to women who are not given the same leniency and the same, uh, the same maneuverability through society as men. And you see that with Jane's character. You see that with, um, oh, her neighbor. Uh, J- with her neighbor. Yes. But you see with Lydia and her relationship with a uh, lieutenant who comes in, played wonderfully complex by Rupert French, who only pops up for a couple scenes, but he's great. Uh, and I love how Joe Wright kind of contrasts all of the Bennett siblings together as like, yes, they're all different facets of marriage, but they all kind of want the same thing. Like, they all want love. And that is then contrasted against, again, Mrs. Bennett, played again by brilliantly by Brenda Blethyn, who is very practical, who is very sensible. But again, she's made out to be a bit of an antagonist, and I wish that was made a bit more clear, uh, but it's wonderfully made for what it is. And then you have also have, you know, Rosamund Pike, who, again, early in her career, but she's so charismatic in this. Her relationship with Elizabeth is absolutely adorable, and you get really a sense of how close they are and how vibrant their relationship is. And on top of that, the film looks great. Like, the costuming is great. I don't know who the costume designer is. Uh, Roman, who's the cinematographer's name? Uh, Roman Osin, he makes the colors pop, like the greens and yellows really pop here. Even the rain scene, which is supposed to be pretty much, you know, kind of muddled, kind of, uh, kind of making the characters feel like they're not really maneuvering properly through their lives. Even that is made so clear and in frame and it looks, it just looks great. As somebody who gets a little giddy whenever I get a little romantic text from my partner, um, definitely were like romantic words or like poetic, uh, love letters definitely speak volumes to my, um, to the things that I love, uh, in romance. And so, uh, hint, hint, that's why I love Cyrano. Um, but as we explore <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, um, the chemistry between Bennett's, uh, between, uh, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy is made all the more like, I guess, colorful and, um, so, so endearing and strong because of the way that the two speak to each other. Um, while uh, Mr. Darcy is a soft spoken man and like very reserved, um, it's like in, it's like they have like these battles of in dialogue between Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy because of how observant Elizabeth is and how honest and blunt she can be even to a member of high ranking staff, uh, social status, um, whereas she's more considered like on the lower end. And so I, I found myself really intrigued whenever those two were on screen because I just knew the word jabs that they would throw at each other would be very well written. Um, they would, you know, say one thing, but mean three different others. And uh, I think in this time period, the way that people spoke to each other, um, even in love letters or even just face to face, the way that it's written is just entertaining in itself. You know, I, I don't mind um, steering clear of all the action that we get from other, um, other titles. If it means that we're going to have a script that's as, um, you know, as new and as, um, diverse with with the way that the, their characters communicate. I found that to be really intriguing in this movie. I think that also goes to the idea of like Austin as a, as a master of language and as a master of like diction. I think Deborah McGawk, uh, I think she really utilizes that to full advantage, like you say, in the scenes between Darcy and Elizabeth, which again have great chemistry, but also have this kind of secret language between the two that really just pops through. There was a dance number where the two, you know, in formal dance uh, sequences, they dance with one partner, but it kind of involves switching around different partners. Um, and they are communicating all the while. It's like one camera shot. That was another one that I was really captured by. I, I just want to quickly go off that last detail, which is that as far as like rights, you know, tricks and techniques in here, there's two that really stand out. There's the long tracking shots, which I absolutely adore. Like he gets so much out of it. There is... um. There's that one scene at the party where it kind of pans over between uh, Tallulah Riley's character and then back to the sisters and then back to Jane and uh, and uh, Mr. Darcy. And it just, it, it's so great. It's so and, great. You're seeing, like, it's like you're at the party and you can see the way um, Rosamund Pike's character is blushing over uh, Mr. Bingley. And then you see Elizabeth run up and, like, have that little moment of excitement with her sister before we go back to Mr. Bingley, who's noticing the sisters. It's it's such a great uh, perspective to have that um that was captured by Wright. And Mr. Symptoms. Bing, Mr. Bingley, I meant to say, I said Darcy. It's, it, it, there's a lot of characters in the movie. Uh, the, the, but the other technique is the, is the sometimes like zoom that he'll do. Like he does like the Joe Wright zoom that he also used in a darkest hour. He used it a lot in pan. Uh, and I think here it's not quite used to great effect. It makes it feel kind of like BBC televised specials, whereas the rest of it feels theatrical and grand and like focused in a vision. And then it's like, let's zoom in on Kira Knightley's face. And I get why it's there. It's just a technique of his that I just don't fight with. All right. Um, 
having seen Pride and Prejudice for the first time, um, I think this movie is a, it's a solid, <laughs> sorry to hesitate so much. Okay. We're going, I'm torn between like seven and a half and an eight right now. So I really want to give it an eight. So I'm going to, it is an eight in my book. This Pride and Prejudice movie uh, definitely is welcoming back to my, I'm going to say Cyrano, Bridgerton, Little Women. Like I'm ready to live in this period again and explore stories of such delight and uh, warm family bonds. Uh, and of course, romance of all. Above all else, to top it all off, uh, I'm stuck up for romance. And um, that's all you have to hear from me. Over to Brandon. Only the heartless would deny romance. Uh, this is a very strong eight and a half for me. I really respect this, especially the first feature from Joe Wright again, coming in and taking, you know, the iconic language and status and settings of Jane Austen and bringing them so vibrantly to life with a cast who I don't think there's a weak link in here, but again, Kieran Etley and Matthew McCaden are, you know, the obvious standouts. And again, like, it's really cool seeing, like, you know, Jenna Malone and Gary Mulligan, like, the very start of their careers, like, they're absolutely babies, and, like, Rosamund Pike before Gone Girl. Like, it's a bit of a time capsule of, like, British cinema at the time. Tom Hollander, there's a bit of a um, Pirates of the Caribbean reunion between him and Kieran Etley. That's always great. But at the same time, it is a true-to-life romance. Like, it knows its it knows of its time, it knows of its status, but it goes through with it anyway, as, as I think Austin's best work intended, and is just vibrant and electric and just really works at all the right places. Uh, it's streaming on HBO Max. It's available on VOD as well as uh, Hulu Premium. So there are ways that you can all watch it. Uh, we both recommend it. And with that, that'll wrap up Episode 20 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in this episode and sticking with us uh, all this long. We, again, hope to be continuing this for a long time, and we have a blast doing it for you guys. Listen, while we've got you here, do us a quick favor. Uh, go to Twitter at Plot Devices Pod or Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. Follow us there. You'll get updates on when our episodes drop um, there every other week. We're on a bi-weekly schedule now, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices. That's once again Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices and Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. I want to thank my co-host, Noah Guzman, for joining us. Uh, Noah, where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? Hello. You can follow me over at Twitter. My at is Noah's Plotting. That is right. What am I plotting? New things all the time. Of course, you know, we're going to beat it to death, but I will be talking Cyrano very soon on the pod. Otherwise, uh, if I'm not busy uh, working on a new musical here in Phoenix or serving downtown, um, I'm returning to screens. I'm returning to theaters to go watch Scream again and again. I've now seen it twice in theaters, and I honestly can't get enough. If you haven't made your way there yet, uh, go check out Ghostface in the new Scream movie. It is excellent. And uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Hopefully, by the time you're hearing this, my Jackass Forever review will be out as well. I'll be covering in the next episode of the podcast as well. So stay tuned for that. Uh, you can also follow my band Cablebox at Cablebox underscore music. Uh, we have a recent video of us at the ASU Battle of the Band's preliminaries. Uh, we didn't win, but the set is up there if you want to finally hear something modern from us. Our last video is like two years old, so go check that out. And that'll be it for us. Uh, so for episode 20 and hopefully to 20 more, my name is Brandon King. That is Noah Guzman. This is Implot Devices, and we will catch you guys next time.